Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about the one-year anniversary of the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Kevin Landers has an in-depth interview with Governor Mike DeWine looking back at the year 2021. And Tracy Townsend talks with two political analysts about the races for governor in Ohio, as well as for the U.S. Senate seat currently held by Republican Rob Portman, who is not running for re-election. In the second half hour, I'll talk with the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, and I'll wrap up the hour with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families, His agency has big plans for the Kimberly Parkway area. That's the Eastland Mall area. First up on Columbus Perspective, I had just about three minutes this week to speak with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about the one-year anniversary of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. January 6th, can you tell us a little bit about how that day unfolded for you, your experience, and what you think about it now? Yeah, it was um, the most terrific uh, day of my career at work. It was... um, to watch, um, to, to, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't threatened directly, um, but a whole lot of people were. Keep in mind the Capitol, it's not just a bunch of senators and congressmen and women, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of workers, police officers and custodians and, and plumbers and people that, staff people that work in the offices whose lives were threatened, who, um, who were locked in rooms where terrorists pounded on the windows and the, the walls and the doors. And uh, those those terrorists should be held accountable, but not just those who committed the violent acts, including assaulting police officers, resulting in the death of, of, of several of them. But the people who are behind this need to need to be held accountable, too. And in 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 large part, because the myth is still out there that this election that Joe Biden is not a legitimate elected president. And we all all evidence says he is. At least 38 people from Ohio have been arrested as a result of that. It's pretty shocking how wide-ranging this whole thing was. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was people who who attacked our seat of government, attacked our government, that attacked the workers there, the, the custodians and the police officers and and the tradespeople that uh, fundamentally the, the terrorists destroyed and the custodians rebuilt or cleaned up and the Union workers rebuilt the Capitol after the damage in the Capitol afterwards. And uh, people, the people that uh, stormed the Capitol and did that damage should be held accountable, should be prosecuted. But so should the people that planned it. So should the people that that ignited it. So should the people that continue to put out there that and especially elected officials should be ashamed of themselves who continue to put out there that that this wasn't really a riot. It was tourists at the Capitol. It was not really that violent. I mean, tell those 150 police officers were hurt, who were hurt, who were attacked with sticks and flagpoles and, and, and fists and everywhere else, tell them this wasn't violent, that this wasn't an insurrection. It clearly was, but everybody should be held accountable who had anything to do with it. And last question, do you think Congressman Jordan or Sean Hannity, people like that, should be compelled to testify? I think that everybody that's asked should testify, um, particularly if they have positions of public trust. Any any member of Congress that had anything to do with this should be willing to appear and answer questions truthfully in front of front of this bipartisan commission. This is a bipartisan commission that simply wants to know what happened. We saw the all the videos of the attacks. We don't know about all the meetings 
planning these attacks. We don't know exactly the role of the president. Uh, we don't know exactly the role of the attorney general, but we know that this was an act of this was an act of treason by some people who tried to overthrow our government, who tried to undo an election that clearly was a fair, honest election. Thanks for your time, Senator. All right, sure. Thanks, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for Face the State. Happy New Year. I'm Tracy Townsend. As we start 2022, we want to take some time to reflect on the year that was 2021. It was another year in the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a major emphasis nationwide and here at home in Ohio on vaccination. Reporter Kevin Lander sat down one-on-one with Governor Mike DeWine to get his thoughts on 2021. State lawmakers tied your hands back in March when they gave them approval power over health orders. It looked like you retreated and caved to preserve your party's peace. What's your take on that? Well, that's absolutely not true. Uh, I've had one focus since this pandemic began, and that's on saving lives and saving people's livelihoods so that so they could work. I, I think Ohio has had a very good balance. We've done it the Ohio way. We haven't done it the way some other states have done it. Some states have, you know, shut everything down. Uh, you know, I think we had a, a very uh, consistent policy. And, you know, what someone says as they criticize me or that that does not impact what I'm going to do. I do believe that people once the vaccines were available, I think everyone's attitude across this country, governors, president, everyone, it shifted because the facts had shifted. We now had the ability, people had the ability to to protect themselves. But, you know, my plea is the same. You know, if you have not been vaccinated, this is how you keep your kids in school. This is how you save lives. Uh, If you haven't had the booster shot, please get the booster shot. It's very, very, very powerful as well. Which administration do you think has handled it the best? President Trump uh, was in office at a very different time than President Biden. Uh, Each one has faced a different circumstance. Uh, I think when you look at uh, what the Trump administration did, they get a lot of credit for making the moves very early on in this pandemic so that we would have the vaccine. Um, we have a good relationship uh, with with both of those administrations in regard to the COVID. They both were focused on let's let's deal let's deal with the COVID. So. You know, I think it's important for the governor of the state to work very closely with the president of the United States, no matter who the president of the United States is, on a a national crisis such as this. Look, we may disagree about policy issues, but saving lives and keeping people working and protecting their livelihoods, these are all common, common goals. And so we're going to work with who's ever in the White House on these specific goals. We mentioned about the health orders being being taken away. Do you think that weakened you as a governor? Do you think that puts Ohioans' health at risk by not giving you the ability to do those orders that you used to be able to do before 
the legislature stepped in? Well, I expressed my opinion uh, and my position very, very clearly to the legislature. Uh, on one occasion, you know, they overrode my veto. We have to respect what our Constitution says. They, they overrode the veto. But that never stopped me uh, from pushing as hard as I could every single day to work to keep Ohioans working, but also to keep Ohioans protected. You know, one of the things that we're looking at right now is uh, everyone wants to be tested, and that's very, very understandable. Uh, you know, I want to thank our, our libraries. They stepped up. We asked the libraries a number of months ago, will you distribute these tests? Now, that's not something libraries usually do, but they, but they did it. Uh, and so when people call the library, and if the library's out, don't blame the library. You know, they, they, have, they have done a very, very good job in this. If you look back, uh, Kevin, we've we bought millions of these tests, and we bought them early enough so that we would have them. Uh, as of today, I think we've put out about 5 million of these tests free around the state. If you just look uh, in, in December, I think we've had uh, over a million that we put out. And in Franklin County alone, I think it's been about 110,000. So there's a great appetite out there for these tests. We're not totally satisfying that, but we're we're going to continue to put these out as fast as we can. When you look at Omicron, you probably never thought we'd be at this point today, having lived through what we did last year. How concerned are you about this virus spreading into next year and what life will look like next year if we don't get a handle on vaccinations uh, and people getting boosters? Well, I'm very concerned about it. I think anyone looking at what's going on has to be concerned. Uh, our hospitals filled up uh, in Ohio, and the threat that that poses to every person, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated, you could be in there tomorrow, I could be in there tomorrow, a loved one of ours could be in for an auto accident or, or a heart attack or some other, other problem. So having our hospitals filled and having our nurses and doctors worn out um, yes, that's, that certainly certainly worries me. Um, we do have a remedy, <laughs> and I think part of my job is to continue to point out what that remedy is. Um, you know, some people have talked about miracles. Uh, what has happened in regard to the vaccine and the fact that it was developed that fast and the fact that it is once you get that vaccine, you are almost guaranteed that you're not going to be into a hospital and almost guaranteed you're not going to die from this is frankly a miracle. We need to take advantage of, of what has what has been presented to us by the by the scientists and and use it. Do you need to do something differently? Do you need to pivot in any way to try to turn around what's happening, considering we just had the highest number of cases ever? What we're seeing in Ohio, we're seeing across the country. Uh, and that is generally that our more, more rural areas are less vaccinated. Um, we've looked at every kind of messaging we can do. Uh, I still believe that the best message comes from your own personal doctor. And what I tell people is, you don't have to listen to Mike DeWine. Listen to your doctor. Go talk to your doctor. And that doctor can tell you the pros and cons of doing this. And I think that, you know, doctors will tell their patients that the much better off getting the vaccine than not getting the vaccine. So that's what I do. I tell people, go talk to your own individual doctor. 
Ohio lawmakers took up several controversial bills in 2021, including gun control measures and an anti-abortion bill. Here's what the governor had to say about that part of the year. What are your thoughts on anyone over the age of 21 to carry a concealed gun or other weapon without a license in Ohio? Yeah, I'm going to look at the bill. Uh, I have not made a position because I have not seen what the final version of that bill is going to be. And I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that one today. What, what, why do you think that's a, a bill that's important for Ohioans? Well, under our Constitution, uh, any bill that's passed by the legislature has to be looked at by the governor, and the governor has to make a decision. Uh, is he or she going to sign the bill or veto the bill or let it become law? So this bill is no different than that. any other bill in regard to what my constitutional obligation is. Do you feel a concern that having more people with weapons would increase the ability for people to commit more crime? Well, I think the we have some very specific things we have already done in regard to the crime problem. There are more things that can be done. One of the things that can be done uh, is for the legislature to pass a bill that I have presented to them, which would focus on repeat violent offenders. The, the facts are very clear that three or four percent of the of the criminals people who commit felonies. It's a very small number of them who are the violent offenders, but they're generally repeat offenders. So we have to go after them. We need some help from the legislature in regard uh, to that bill. The other thing that we have done, uh, I've asked the legislature to pass a, a quarter of a billion dollars to go out to our local police departments. They passed it. They passed it very quickly, and that money will be starting to go out to our local police departments in the next several months. You signed an abortion bill with no exceptions for rape or incest. I wonder if that gave you any pause. Um, people will say that it's just re-victimizing women again who are victims of crime and then have to deliver uh, a child. I'd like to know your thoughts about that. I am pro-life. Uh, I think one of the essential functions of government is to protect the most vulnerable members of society. The unborn uh, certainly come into that, that category. So I signed the heartbeat bill, and I'm, you know, I'm very, uh, I told everyone that I was going to do that uh, before the election. The legislature sent the bill to me and I, and I signed it. Should not have been a surprise to, to anyone. It's essential functional government to protect the most vulnerable. Did it ever give you pause about not having exceptions to that? I, 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 thought, the, I thought the bill uh, was a good bill and I signed it. Congressional redistricting maps that you signed into law raises questions about whether you're really interested in what's better for the greater good of Ohio or, Ohio or just your party ma maintaining political control. As governor, what makes sense about these maps to you? Well, in regard to the state legislative act maps and in regard to the congressional maps, if you look at what was presented and you look at what the Constitution required, um, the maps that were presented by Republicans better complied with the Constitution. Things such as, you know, uh, cutting down on the number of counties that are split up uh, and other things in there. So if you look at that, that's that's why, you know, I signed the bill, for example, in regard to the, the uh, congressional 
uh, seats. But ultimately, uh, this is pending before the Supreme Court, and I think we should just wait. Let's see what the, United, what the Ohio Supreme Court says in regard to both the congressional uh, district maps that have been presented as well as the state legislature. We'll follow whatever the court tells us to do. That's the way our system works. Up next, the governor talks about his biggest accomplishment in 2021, and we also ask for his thoughts on his biggest regret. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com, and thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. And we're back with more of our one-on-one interview with Governor Mike DeWine. 10TV's Kevin Landers asked him to name his biggest accomplishments and regrets for 2021. I'd like for you to reflect back on this year. What do you see as your greatest personal accomplishment? And what do you see as your biggest regret this year as governor? Well, since I became governor, we've had one overriding goal, uh, and that is to do everything that we can to make sure every single Ohioan uh, has the opportunity to live up to their God-given potential. Uh, so we've focused, we've done uh, more things than have ever been done, more focus on early childhood education. Fran has the Imagination Library, the Dolly Parton Imagination Library, which is a free book to every child zero to five. We're now up to about 43% of the kids in the state who are, who are getting that. We're doing much more with pregnant mothers who are in difficult circumstances because of poverty or any other reason because we want that child to be a regular birth rate baby, weight baby. Um, We're doing more in regard to continuing um, education for someone who's 30, 40, 50 years old who might be working in in a factory. So the education written very, very large, I think, is the most important thing that we can focus on. And so in spite of the pandemic, in spite of all the the headlines about what was going on with the pandemic, that work continued and that work will continue. What do you see as your biggest regret? You know, we all make mistakes. uh, And I'm sure I've, during my three years in office, I've, I've made mistakes. Uh, If you look at the pandemic, uh, what we've tried to do is take the facts that we knew at the time, the best medical advice. Uh, We've rolled into that, bringing in people from the business community uh, to help us early on, for example, come up with how businesses were going to reopen, how they were going to operate during during the, uh, the virus being here during the pandemic. So we've done the best we can based upon the facts that we knew at, at the time. So I'll, I'll leave it to others to uh, 
list Mike DeWine's uh, failures. And, uh, you know, as we come into a, a campaign, I'm sure that, uh, you know, our opponents will be uh, out there talking about what they think our failures were. Do you think some of the regret is closing businesses perhaps too too early? Or, or no, you- I, I think if you look at Ohio compared to other states, what you'll find is that we did it really the Ohio way. We had a balance. Um, you know, something I'm very proud of is that when we made decisions about how businesses were going to open up in every business sector, we didn't just listen to health people. We also bought, brought in business people and created committees, come up with the best protocol. Because we did that, uh, the truth is that for most employees, the eight hours or nine hours that they were at work during the day was the safest time that they had. Um, we saw we were seeing very little spread directly in the workplace, and I think that's a tribute to uh, the groups that we put together, the businessmen and women who helped us design for every single type of business, you know, the best protocols. Still like the job? Well, if you like making decisions and if you like uh, being uh, in, in the middle of everything, uh, yeah, being governor is a pretty good job. But, but look, seriously, uh, I ran for governor because I wanted to do things. I wanted to focus on things. I wanted to focus on the most vulnerable. I wanted to focus on the education for our kids. I wanted to make sure that everybody in Ohio, uh, as they're growing up, no matter whether they live in an inner city, whether they live in Appalachia, or whether they live in the suburbs, has the ability uh, an opportunity to live their version of the American dream. And we don't win every day. We don't get everybody to do that every day. But that remains our focus. And that's what makes the job for me, you know, so very, very uh, exciting because every day we can make some progress on that. Up next, we will look ahead to what's in store for Ohio in 2022. You'll hear from both sides of the aisle on the big races coming up and the hot button issues expected to make some waves in the United States. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer songwriter. And like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. You deserve the peace of mind that comes with affordable health insurance. Get Covered Ohio can help at no charge. Financial assistance is available and coverage is more affordable than ever. Some health insurance plans are as low as $10 or less a month. Don't wait. Open enrollment ends January 15th. Make your free appointment today by calling 833-628-4467 or visit GetCoveredOhio.org. This message is supported by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, but does not necessarily represent the official views of the U.S. government. Sponsored by the Ohio Association of Food Banks, aired by the OAB and the station. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. We want to now focus on 2022. Several big changes are on the horizon for Ohio, including a change in representation of our state on the national level and the possibility of a leadership change on the state level. We have perspective from both sides of the aisle on what's in store for this year from our conversation with Herb Asher, Professor Emeritus of the Ohio State University Department of Political Science and Republican strategist Terry Casey. We start with a couple of big races. Terry Casey. Who do you think is going to get Senator Portman's seat? 
Well, as dirty and nasty as it's been, and as ugly as it's going to get even more so, somebody's bound to win, either a Democrat or Republican. And the Republicans have got the bloodier and nastier primary. Uh, and again, it's going to get worse and worse. One candidate, Josh Mandel, has an initial advantage of name ID, but you've got four or five of the candidates literally with millions of dollars. And that's why I say there's going to be a lot of sharp elbows and a lot of nasty words. And if you think you've seen a lot on TV so far, wait till January, February, March, and April. Herb Asher. I think the conventional wisdom would be that the Republican who wins the primary will be the favorite in the general election, in part because a lot of people are saying that 2022 is going to be a bad year for Democrats in general. But if the party goes too far to the right, you know, if they nominate a candidate who, in order to win the primary, has had to take some really strange and wacko positions, uh, maybe that that gives the Democrats an opportunity. Uh, on the Democratic side, it'll be Tim Ryan as the, as the nominee. And Tim Ryan comes probably the closest in terms of being... Yeah, sort of a, you know, traditional liberal Democrat, moderate liberal Democrat, comes closest to the profile of a Sherrod Brown. Uh, You know, Tim Ryan would never be uh, classified as one of those far out lefty progressive Democrats. So he might be a strong candidate, but he'll partly be at the mercy of what are the prevailing economic tones? is, Is inflation still bad? Is everybody mad at Joe Biden? If that's the case, then that hurts Democrats down ballot. The other race we will be following closely is for Ohio governor. For the Democrats, former Dayton mayor Nan Whaley is running against Cincinnati former mayor John Cranley for the nomination. On the Republican side, Governor DeWine is running for re-election as well as Joe Blystone, a farmer from East Liverpool, and former U.S. Representative Jim Renacci. So who will win? Probably on the Democrat side, they've got a heated race, but I think Dayton's Nan Whaley will probably win. But I think it'll probably be Nan Whaley versus Mike DeWine. And Mike DeWine, in terms of name ID and the record, and uh, he's going to have the campaign money. And if you look at the polling data in the fall, Mike DeWine gets pretty high marks from not just not all Republicans, but most Republicans, but especially among independents. And Democrats, he does very well, much better than your average Republican. And if it is DeWine versus Whaley, DeWine will certainly be the favorite as the incumbent and all election year. In a state like Ohio, where the Republicans have about a four or five point advantage just starting off. But I think Democrats are also hoping that uh, the scandals associated with First Energy, Larry Householder, House Bill 6, that all of these, that more will continue to come out and that that will give them an opportunity to run on on the issue of corruption. There's a lot of anticipation in 2022 surrounding the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on the Mississippi law banning abortions at 15 weeks. So we asked, how will the court rule? Republican strategist Terry Casey. There's going to be a decision. Abortion will still be legal 
in certain parts of America. I think the big question is, what is the timing of when do they say viability? Because as you look at the original Roe decision of 73, you look at the later Casey decision, no connection to me, it basically moved to the question of viability. And the good news is medically, uh, babies or unborn could be kept alive at a younger age in terms of the process compared to the normal nine months. So I think there'll be a decision. It'll be much debated, but it won't abolish abortion totally. It won't say business as usual, but it's going to tighten it down and you're going to see more differences of what states do to limit later term abortions, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Herb Asher, Professor Emeritus of the Ohio State University Department of Political Science. It does sound like from the uh, the questioning that they're going to approve uh, Mississippi's 15-week. And then the question becomes, how do they frame that? Do they now give a very narrow that 15-week limitations are constitutional. But what does that mean about 14, 13, 12? Well, yeah. Uh, will the court want to be constantly addressing the next effort to weaken abortion rights? I'm not sure they do. I think, it, you know, they, they don't, this doesn't do great benefit for their reputation, but I, I think they'll support the, the Mississippi law. If they approve it, that doesn't end Roe versus Wade. Now, if, in fact, they were to say uh, we're approving Mississippi law and more broadly we're saying that Roe versus Wade really doesn't have standing anymore, that's a different story. And we thank you all for joining us today. We wish you a happy new year. Remember, if it affects you, your family and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Still to come on Columbus Perspective, I'll talk with the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League and Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families, who has big plans for the Kimberly Parkway area. That's the Eastland Mall area of Columbus. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. Eleven million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Jonathan Greenblatt, who is the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. How are you? Good, how are you? Nice to speak with you again, Dave. Good, thanks for talking to us. Tell us, uh, just in a nutshell, about the Anti-Defamation League. ADL is the oldest anti-hate group in the country. We were founded over 100 years ago after the lynching of a Jewish man in the South. And on a daily basis, uh, literally for decades and decades, we respond to 
uh, hate crimes. We deal with uh, law enforcement and track the extremists. And as well, we work to bring anti-bias, anti-hate content to schools. We're literally the largest trainer of law enforcement in America on issues of extremism and hate. And we are one of the largest providers of anti-hate content in schools, reaching more than a million and a half kids. And today, you know, we're fighting hate on the front lines, whether that's on Facebook, in the political arena, and we're doing it in cities all over America. We have an office there in Cleveland. We've been on the ground in Ohio since the 1960s. And uh, you're out with a book called It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. My first question in looking at the title of that is, Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable. What is the unthinkable? I think the unthinkable is civil war. I think the unthinkable is an explosion uh, so great that it tears our social fabric apart. I think the unthinkable is the point where political violence which remains an exception today, actually becomes the rule. And I I say that we're tipping toward this point based on three factors. Number one, the history of ADL. I mean, again, we've been tracking extremists and monitoring hate for more than a century. We've seen this happen before in places like Europe, Asia, Africa, And it's not so far off. In the book, I talk about what happened in Bosnia just a few decades ago. So number one, we've seen this happen before. Number two, you know, my own personal history, like I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany, and my Jewish grandfather never would have imagined that the country, the only country he'd ever known, my great-grandfather fought in the First World War for Germany, would one day turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, literally destroy everything that he ever loved and slaughter his family and friends. And, you know, I'm the husband of a political refugee from Iran. My wife and her Jewish family lived there for thousands of years and then some 40-some-odd years ago never would have imagined that the country, the only one they'd ever known, would turn on them, regard them as enemies of the state, and force them to flee for their lives. And so my own personal history tells me that this can go away in a second if we don't fight for what we have. And that's the third reason I wrote the book. It's, it shares the strategies and tactics and tips that we've developed at ADL to confront hate when it happens, whether that's you know in the classroom, on the college campus, in the workplace, even you know online and social media and other spaces. Talking with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the ADL. I was going to mention social media. You know, the worldwide connectivity of it can be great. And yet, at the same time, I, I take it that, it that it bears a lot of responsibility for what's going on. Oh, Dave, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the fact of the matter is social media has offered us the ability to connect with people across cultures, across continents. I mean, again, you can be sitting in Cincinnati and suddenly find yourself talking to people on the other side of the planet. That was never previously possible. But the dark side is real. And companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and the other platforms, literally they have amplified through their algorithms some of the most extremist voices in society. They've intensified the divides and I think fan the flames rather than cooling them off. And to be honest, Dave, there are loopholes in the law 
that mean if I say something here today, you know, on Ohio News Network, I could be held accountable, held liable. But if you say it on Facebook or on Instagram, you've got total carte blanche because, again, there's a loophole in the law. So these companies need to put people over profits, and they need to exercise the same degree of responsibility, the same degree of accountability that every other media outlet does in America. There seems to be also uh, a, a huge disconnect or understanding that people have between free speech and free speech without consequences. Yes. I mean, when we lived in a more analog world, I think the reality is people felt compelled to behave with a degree of decency toward their neighbors, toward their colleagues, who they saw face-to-face, right? who you met at the coffee shop, who you engaged again at the water cooler. Something's changed, though, Dave, dramatically thanks to social media. And let's be clear, the ADL, we're a civil rights organization. We deeply believe and ferociously will defend the First Amendment. But freedom of speech is not the freedom to slander people. Freedom of expression is not the freedom to incite violence. I don't care if you're a conservative or a progressive, a Democrat or a Republican. If you demean people and denigrate them, if you wish to cause them harm and spread that kind of poison online, you should be accountable for that. I mean, it's, I believe in freedom of speech deeply, passionately, as you can hear, but that doesn't equal freedom of reach. And the platforms need to realize they are responsible when they propagate hate through their services. Well, you mentioned the possibility or the fear of a civil war in the U.S., uh, and they call democracy the great experiment. Can it survive in this sort of environment? I'm glad you asked that question, Dave, because despite, I think, the hazards in front of us, I am incredibly hopeful. Look, this nation has survived civil unrest, economic depression, world wars. I believe we have the capability as a country to come together, but we need to recognize that it's all of our collective responsibility. At a time when hate crimes are up 12% in 2020, according to the FBI, anti-Semitic incidents have doubled in recent years. The level of hate is real and it's terrifying. And yet, if Americans come together and start to interrupt intolerance when it happens, re-engage in civil society, start reapplying some basic values like humanism and decency and tolerance. I mean, I don't believe in moral relativism. I don't believe in cancel culture. I think everyone has the power to be redeemed, and we need to embrace them, and we need to work at it. And if we do that, Dave, I think all things are possible. And this great American experiment, the greatest democracy the world has ever known, can survive for another 250 years. Talking with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO, National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. He's the author of It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, Well, I'll just say, Dave, I think, again, whether you're in Ohio or anywhere else in the country, the issues are real, and I wrote the book to share strategies and tips about what you can do to stop hate, what you can do to stop America from, again, tipping toward the unthinkable. I hope people will read it and find it useful. Jonathan, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Dave. Up next on Columbus Perspective, Dwayne Casares from Directions for Youth and Families with a big announcement about the east side of the city. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. 
We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide, and their families, and their communities, and their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time. His and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? I mean, they go back to college. Learn new instruments. Start skateboarding. Whoa! Okay, maybe that one's not for everybody, but saving for retirement is. With aceyourretirement.org, you can get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. Just have a three-minute chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach from AARP. You'll get personalized recommendations based on your input that are easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Gnarly move, Dad. Thanks, sweetie. So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is Dwayne Casares. He is the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How are you doing, Dwayne? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Let's do a little bio for a second. How long have you been at Directions for Youth and Families? What is it, and what do you do now? Oh, that's kind of funny, because I just had my anniversary. It just means I'm old. I have actually been here now for 30 years. Wow. Um, Yeah, I was uh, really the first master's licensed clinician ever hired, and now we have a team of like 50 outreach social workers, counselors, and therapists. Uh, We do mental health, um, behavioral health services, serving kids and families and communities, serve about 5,000 a year. We also have two after-school centers um, that offer all types of arts and dance and, and music lessons and everything for free and homework help and leadership development. Actually, our Ohio Avenue centers had seven people um, graduate out of our program in the last three years and get scholarships out of our music program to go to college, so we're very proud of that. And we have a new facility out in the far east side, the Kimberly Parkway area, so Eastland Mall area, for those of you who aren't familiar with Kimberly Parkway. Um, Very small facility. We knew when we moved in there we needed to have a bigger building, Um, so uh, we're looking to do that now. And so you've been there 30 years. How long have you been the big kahuna? Dave, I've always been the big kahuna. Let's be very, very clear about this, all right? Uh, (laughs) Um, You know, I don't know. I was clinical director for like 17 years, and I came as an assistant manager. So I don't mind, maybe eight years? Yeah, um, maybe nine years. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, I'm, I was thinking at least eight. Yeah, because yeah, CEO. Yeah, it's probably closer to nine, I guess. So, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of it is uh, outreach, and uh, it's a lot of responsibility. Columbus, you know, you know, it's really interesting because when you think about that long of a time frame, think about what Columbus was thirty years ago. It was a cow town. Look at it now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when when. 
I first came here, which was uh, in 77, you know, like Pepper Road was empty, it was cornfields, and uh, uh, the short north was not a very safe place to be. <laughs> um, things were very, very different back then. So, yeah, things have greatly changed. And you're looking at, I mean, you know, the population, the the, the entire area population, I don't even know if it was a million. Now it's, what, 1.6 or something like that? Yeah, so I'm like 1.8. It's just keep going. And, and, and our projections are just going to continue to boom. So we're, we're a major city now. And that also brings with it a lot, a lot of problems, which are things that you address and going forward, things that you want to address even more. Yeah, it really is. You know, uh, the property I mentioned on the Far East Side in Kimberly Parkway, we first got it about five years ago. We opened up an after-school program, and it was filled up in two days. So we uh, divided everything in shifts so that we could have, like, morning and afternoon shift, and that got filled up in two days. And then we rented some space down the street, and that got filled up by the end of the week. And then we had our open house, and we could not. We've been turning kids and families away since then. Our Howe Avenue Center is 24,000 square feet. So in comparison, um, Kimberly is like uh, 3,500, I think. So uh, we knew we needed a bigger facility. What we didn't realize is that the more that we were there and the more that we worked with that community and the more that we talked to the people in that community, um, there are really no services out there at all. It, it, it is amazing. Um, it, the Kimberly Parkway community used to be a thriving black community. Um, when we started, like three years ago, when we started to push forward a campaign for it uh, pre-COVID, um, it was number one in infant mortality, number one in evictions, number two in crime, number three in poverty. Um, and I bet most of the listeners hadn't even heard of Kimberly Parkway. Uh, it, there's no social services out there. Um, the need is so high, and, and that community is just crumbling. So we knew opening an after-school center wasn't going to be enough. That would be putting a Band-Aid on a much bigger problem. So we started working with the community. Um, actually, we would take them to Ohio Avenue just so they could dream about what we could have. Uh, and we've put together a, a community restoration model um, to help uh, uh, restore that community. And it is about restoration, not transformation. Uh, we were uh, um, very intentional about the fact of working with the community and not at them or, or, or going in there and say we're going to fix things. That's just not how things work. Uh, we need sustainable change, and sustainable change happens only when you're working with people. And this is uh, uh, something that is not conceived overnight. This is, you know, as you mentioned, statistics that you've been looking at, studying that region. There's been a lot of work to this point uh, going into it. Yeah, you know, it, this has been a five-year journey, and um, we now have 21 nonprofits who have agreed to join us in this restoration model because we had to address housing, infant mortality, the new American populations, food, physical health and well-being, community programming, senior services, workforce development. I mean, honestly, there isn't anything. We took the trauma-informed community building model out of uh, um, San Francisco, combined that with Annie E. Casey's two-gen model. We call ours multi-gen. Um, we also combined that with a, a, a cultural community assessment that we have um, put together, uh, and, and we're also addressing the five social determinants of health, which um, those five things show that if you address these things, uh, uh, people have a better opportunity to uh, improve their lives. So um, we've put all this together. It's been five years in putting it together, and we know we couldn't do all the work, so uh, we had to get uh, community partners who were going to join us, and we were very grateful for the 21 nonprofits um, who are going to join us to help uh, uh, restore this community. 
So before we talk more about the actual effort uh, to make that happen, what physically, what what is going to happen on the east side when this is all done? What is it going to look like to the folks who live out there? Well, uh, by addressing all those things, we hope uh, um, that what it's going to do is give people an opportunity uh, um, to grow and to prosper. You know, right now, when you don't have to, we truly believe communities can heal themselves. We do. They just need a little bit of support. And when we looked at what was going on in the Kimberly Parkway community, there's no library out there. There's no Parks and Rec Center. There's no, I mean, there really is, it's void of services. um, And when you have nothing there to help support the social structure or the fabric of that community, and you're struggling with things like infant mortality and poverty and crime, um, that can be very, very hopeless. Uh, We needed to change all of that, and we needed to do with the people there. So we are going to address issues of poverty, issues of infant mortality. We are going to address employment, employment, um, a livable wage. We're going to address the mental health issues and, and emotional regulation. We are going to, we already started addressing infant mortality. We, three years ago, we started, we partnered with Ohio Health to bring in their mobile unit. We couldn't wait for a new building to address infant mortality. This was a way too serious of an issue. They come three times a month and park in our parking lot. And um, we actually, it's been full every time they've done that for the last three years. We also became a vaccination site too um, um, through this pandemic and also a food distribution site because truly there's nothing out there, Dave. So once you wrap your arms around all this to get it going, obviously you talked about these 21 agencies that are going to help, but there's more help in the community that's going to have to come as well, I would think. Yeah, you know, we were, we, the campaign initially was 6.6 million and last June we were at 6.2, so we're getting ready to break ground. But as we all know, everybody's been in this pandemic. We had to rerun the numbers. There's no steel, there's no lumber, there's no truck drivers, there's no laborers, and our costs skyrocketed to 8.8. So where we thought that we were about ready to move forward, uh, we had to take a step back and reassess what we're doing. So um, we, the market has stabilized a little, so those costs have come down to about, we think, at about 8.3 right now, and we're at about 6.5, but that leaves us a little bit short. So uh, we, we knew we didn't want to delay the project. Um, um, too long, so uh, we are, we will be launching a, a what we call our thousand for a thousand campaign. It's our community campaign. Um, it's a campaign. If we can get a thousand people to give us a thousand dollars, then, then uh, we will have a million dollars towards that. Um, that's what the initial thought was, but we also have pavers now and bricks. We, we've developed this uh, a social justice tree that people can buy leaves on. Uh, they can buy pavers leaving up to, leaving up to the tree. That tree will be prominent in the uh, um, uh, uh, front of the building. You're going to be able to see it from the streets. It's going to be made out of metal. Um, uh, contributions will have uh, their, their names engraved on the tree, so it is a social justice tree, and we're calling it that because a community without basic needs is not a just community. This is about social justice. People should not have to struggle to meet basic needs, and we need to address this, particularly in this community, which is largely a community of color. Uh, um, You know, know, a lot of people have been doing things the last two years about social justice. They've marched in marches. They put signs in the yard. We we think that people want to do more. They just don't know what to do, and this is a very tangible thing that they can contribute to um, and and really have a direct impact on a community. Also, let me say, too, our community restoration model was made to be mobile so that we can take it to other communities. Um, the transferability of it 
this is critical if we're going to continue to meet the needs. We have to stop doing things to communities, and we have to start working with them to address the issues that affect them. Talking with Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. You mentioned this is in uh, the Eastland Mall area, and so what? what is it? Uh, you know, if somebody's listening to this thinking, okay, it's uh, $8 million that you want to spend, you're talking about a building also, what is it? What, what are they going to see out there? Well, we're going to have all the stuff that we have at Ohio Avenue. So we're really kind of uh, mimicking our Ohio Stab Avenue building, um, which ha- has space for all the, the, the um, uh, community partners that I talked about to address housing, to address legal needs, to address food. We're going to have a farmer's market and, and a community garden. Uh, we will have community walks. We're going to have an outdoor amphitheater. Our bands um, are going to have community concerts. Actually, uh, we've already had the Columbus Symphony out twice. Uh, um, it, you know, there the symphony has a lot of stuff about the mental health benefits of their music and taking this music to toxic stress communities is really where they belong so they've been grateful and partnering with us and we've had two concerts outdoor social distance concerts um we want the, the community to have a safe place to gather and to begin to address their issues and again uh, we're not looking to fix them we're looking to work with them to address these things and so that they can have their basic needs met so are you getting uh, feedback or help from, I don't know, say, you know, the so-called neighborhood pillars? We have had uh, um, the parents from this community involved from the beginning. This is where we started. We would take parents from the community um, and take them in our vans to our Ohio Avenue Center um, so that we could talk about what we're having. And i got to tell you, Dave, the response was unbelievable. Well, some of the first parent groups, one of the moms said at the end of it, I can't believe you're willing to do this for us. Now, think about that. No one should feel that they're unworthy of basic needs. And to say something like that, we knew that this narrative has to change. Another mother talked about how her son was killed in those streets for 10 years ago. Um, She's been trying to get something out there to help that community for 10 years, and she asked us if we were angels. People should not have to feel that way. This is not not what should be happening in our communities. Uh, We we should address these things, and we should do it in a supportive, helpful, and and really working with people. Um, We have to do this because we need something that's going to be sustainable. And when you look at uh, situations like that, too, with a pandemic that's been going on now for, you know, ready to go into its third year and you look back at that first school year when it went to online learning and you're talking about maybe you know a poverty-stricken family with maybe four kids who are all trying to learn from home online with no wi-fi no high speed it's a nightmare and it's and no laptop these needs were great Uh, and so as much as the community has kind of responded to address these things uh, it was still a very very difficult road and all of those things still aren't addressed and the other thing dave is i don't even care if you have all if you have the wi-fi you have the computers if you're hungry we've had families that the whole family had covid so nobody could go get food so we had to drop off um, um, bags of food at people's houses you're not going to be able to do anything if you don't have basic needs met if you think you're going to, it's number one in eviction. How are you going to address things when you think that you don't know if you're even going to be there the next day? Um, these things have to be addressed. And you can't point a finger at a community leader or state leader and say it's your fault because this has been a problem for 200 years. Yeah, to me, it's not even, a, I don't even care how we got there. It's, I think about that in therapy sometime. I don't, it doesn't matter to me how you got here. What I care about is where we're going from here forward. 
and how can we make things better. Um, we can get lost in, in, in um, the history of things, or we can be uh, uh, proactive and be intentional about moving things forward, and that's what we intend to do. Hey, hey, let me say, too, Dave, that part of this whole thing, and hopefully the public will start to hear about it, we have some great partners in the community who are going to work with us. We actually have uh, six breweries that are going to make social justice beers for us, um, and each of them have a night to uh, uh, promote um, the, the, the uh, community restoration project in the Kimberly Parkway area. Uh, Clark Kellogg uh, has agreed. Um, actually, we, we taped the spots this week, so he has done some pieces for us, and he and his wife have both been uh, very supportive of this project, too. So uh, we're really looking to engage the community um, so that together all of us will be able to make this a reality uh, uh, for the Kimberly Parkway area. Dwayne Casares again, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. And as you mentioned, this has been in the works for years, but you're kind of speeding up the timeline to, to try to get some of this stuff yeah, done, right? That when the pr- prices went up, actually, I would be honest with you, we, there was a discussion on our board about whether we should delay the project a couple, couple of years. And, and quite honestly, my response was absolutely not. This is a dying community. They've waited long enough for something. Uh, we're going to figure out how to do this, and, and, and we're going to do it now. So, um, so that's why we're pushing all this forward. We're, we're grateful for the breweries that, that are um, going to join us in this endeavor. Uh, we're grateful for Clark Kellogg. We're grateful for all the support that we're getting with the 21 nonprofit partners. Uh, we're going to push this forward, and, and we hope to break ground within the next two months. Wow, that's fantastic, and it's a great way for different areas of the city, individuals who want to get involved, to chip in and help out an area of town that needs it so desperately. Yeah, it really, really is. So it's it's, it's pretty exciting as we move forward. Um, it, because this has been a five-year journey, I can't tell you, uh, it, you know, how excited I am uh, for just the community um, that will be able to start to realize a dream that all of us have had for a while uh, in, in this restoration model. If uh, people want to find out more about it, I know that you're going to be rolling out a lot more information in the near future. Uh, is there? Do you have uh, information on your website or anywhere? You can check things out at www.dfyf.org. Um, they could come to any of the breweries. Am I allowed to say the breweries' names? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, Crafted Culture, which is uh, the only black-owned brewery uh, in the Columbus area out in Gahanna. Um, Olin Tangy River, Lineage Land Grant, Parsons North, and Wolf Ridge. They will all soon have coasters that will have QR codes as well as the beers, uh, uh, the social justice beers that they are brewing specifically for this. Um, so information can be gathered there, um, and, and we hope to put it out uh, uh, with all these, uh, um, uh, in a sense, they're calling teasers, these little commercials leading up to these events um, over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully people will see that, and you can access information from uh, uh, those sites as well. It's fantastic. Uh, Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Anything else you'd like to add? any support from the community um this is uh it's needed for people who have been struggling and um it truly is something tangible that we can all do to address uh uh, social justice it's great uh, you know when i talk to you and you know you're on every month for years you've never been one to try to get people to give to your organization and i've always appreciated that about you that you don't overkill all that stuff but this is this is something at this moment that is greatly in need and when you're talking about it you know that it's needed and important yeah i appreciate 
appreciate that, Dave. Yeah, I, I've never thought that when you and I talked that, that it should be fundraising for us, uh, but this is not. Uh, this is actually for the community, and it's something that we're all very, very passionate about, and it truly is uh, uh, about um, basic needs and very basic things and life and death in some situations uh, for people in our own community that all of us um, should pay attention to. Dwayne, uh, thanks so much for your time today, and good luck with this effort. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.